Please be seated. Thank you, Chris. It's wonderful to have Pastor Mike back. It really is. We have a full service today. We'll be going to the Lord's table in this message. I hope we'll segue into that and tie us from the baptism uh, service that we had a moment ago to that portion in which we remember the Lord's table and the Lord's death. But here we are in a very brief message this morning with a focus on verse 9 of our text. Joshua chapter 5, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us, Lord. Teach us what it is to come to you. Teach us what it is to live depending on you. Teach us what it is to persevere in you and to know your sustaining grace in covenant with your Son on our behalf. Oh, let us see Jesus, we pray. For we ask it in his name. Amen. There are things, you know, that each of us probably would long to do if we can work it into our lifespan sometime or another. One of those things for me <clears throat> was to see the northern lights, and I still haven't. <clears throat> and another was to run a marathon. I'm getting to the point in my life where that's not going to happen, I think. <laughs> but when I was 50, that was, <laughs> I'm not going to say, better part of two decades ago. When I was 50, I, on back-to-back -back Saturdays, ran more than a half marathon, 14-something point-something miles, and in between ran three 10,000-meter uh, uh, runs just to keep working out. I think I was ready. God and his providence uh, worked it out so I didn't have my opportunity to run it. But I love watching them, you know, <laughs> and I still imagine what it would be like. But the interesting thing is everybody jams up at the front. You ever notice that? Whichever marathon you're on. And, and the gun sounds and everybody's off. And the mob moves, you know. A few miles later, you don't have that mob anymore. And by five, ten miles, you sure don't. It's strung out. And a large number of those who start don't finish. Or don't finish on time for it to count. Many begin. Not so many. Finish. Our lives can be like that. Many begin well and fall along the way. Have you ever noticed that all the heroes in the Bible, there are many, many, many of them, very few of them, many begin well, but very few of them finish well. These are the heroes of the Bible. Heroes of faith, they're listed in the roll call of the faithful, the hall of fame, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 11. And Many of them don't finish well at all. It's not an accident, you know. It really isn't. God does that intentionally so that we can see that every one of these heroes of faith had feet of clay. Every one of them needed a hero to be their champion and to do what they could not. And in the end, there is only one hero, capital H, in the great story of redemption, and that one is Jesus, and we've come to talk about him today. And 
passage that we have had before us, it's printed in your bulletin in the old New International Version, um, teaches us that God is able to deliver to the uttermost those who trust in him. God is able to deliver to the uttermost those who trust in him. Now, if I sat down now, you'd have the sermon. But let's look at the text to see why that's so. First, it's so because God has begun to deliver his people. Verse 1, they're now in the land. Last week, we left them about to cross Jordan, you remember. That was a rather lengthier discursus, two sermons into one. I should probably never try to do that again, but, but it gave us the big picture of God's work bringing his people out of Egypt through Sinai and finally to the brink of Jordan and how they had not gone that way before. Many of us haven't either. Now they've crossed the Jordan and the Jordan has flooded behind them. There is no escape. It's cut off. <laughs> the first thing God tells them to do is to Circumcise themselves. Now, if you go back to Genesis, you read what happened when the Shechemites circumcised themselves, and it was a ruse by, unfortunately, Simeon and Levi, uh, uh, J- Jacob's sons, to get revenge for uh, the son of, of uh, the king, Abimelech's uh, sons, uh, uh, degrading their sister. And they went in, and uh, as I said, we'll be one with you if you'll just circumcise yourself. Okay, we'll do it. The king gets the people to do it. All the men are, you know, they've not done it before. They don't know (laughs) how. And uh, so three days later, they are in great agony. Hard to fight. Simeon and Levi took some retainers. They went in among them in in the... uh, vicinity of Shechem, they wiped out every single male from among them. How could they do that? Just a few people. They could do it because the fighting men were all debilitated. The army was recovering. There was a lot of infection and fever going around, I'm sure. Now, God has taught his people how to make flint knives, do it carefully. But the point is that in about three days, they're going to be incapacitated on the plains of Jericho in full view of the arrayed hosts of their enemies with no egress possible because escape is cut off by the flooding Jordan River. What kind of a general would do that? I'll tell you what kind of general would do that, the Lord of hosts. Why? Because the armies of Israel were not Their primary defense. The Lord was. Their forefathers had not learned that. Their parents. They had a lesson to learn. God's now begun to deliver his people. They're now in the land. But they do not yet possess it. They're crammed into a corner of it. Surrounded by their enemies. Oh. The deliverance is still before them. But God has brought them out of bondage. He's led them into a new life. Verse 4, out of Egypt. You've heard about that. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Into, verse 6, a land flowing with milk and honey. The deliverance has begun. What God promised them. He said, it's good what I'm calling you to. You leave the leeks and the onions that come with slavery in Egypt. 
And I'll bring you to a land where your diet is different and your labor is different because you're not slaves anymore. And God's begun to do that. And he's promised them his presence and his provision. We're told they moved about in the desert. Now, we've got to understand what those words mean. They moved about in the desert. How did they move? Well, they didn't move when they felt like it. They didn't, some of them moved now and some of them moved a different direction later. You put a million flies in a giant jar in the midst of the red heart of Australia and lift the jar and those flies will go a million different directions. You put a million locusts like that and lift the jar and they move together. Solomon Proverbs says uh, four things. Wise in the earth, small but wise. And one of them is locusts, he says, have no king. Don't have a queen bee, they don't have a queen ant. They have no king, no monarch, yet they move together in ranks. Who teaches them? God in his providence moves it. It's a, it's a metaphor for the people of God and the unity of love and of support that is not enjoined because of a hierarchical imposition of authority but rather a loving, supportive authority, fatherly. It is an authority of a very different kind than the world knows. They had the manna. They moved when the cloud, the Shekinah cloud moved. The cloud of presence, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. When it moved, they did. When it stopped, they stopped. And God gave them manna. In the desert, we talked about that last week. And the Hebrew word manna means, what is it? What's it? What's it? They hadn't seen it before. As we see in today's text, they wouldn't see it again after they were brought in to the promised land and began to eat from the fruit of the land that flows with milk and honey. God provided it. It's called bread from heaven elsewhere in the scripture. Now, I want to suggest that modern technology makes some things easier. Well, that's true. But does it make everything and does it make life as a whole really easier? Certainly not simpler. Well, you can microwave things. That's simpler, isn't it? You can uh, quickly access information, travel more quickly, communicate more prolifically. But we can also find our lives fragmented and displaced. Caught up in the rat race, if you will, striving so hard for things that we do not need and missing out on the things that really matter, like family, our walk with God, our participation in the body life of the people of God, not just showing up for an hour on Sunday, but really prizing what it means to belong to each other. Persecuted church, your brothers and sisters long for that freedom. They don't have it. And the people, a branch of the body of Christ that takes it for granted and, and deems it unimportant will find they may lose it in the discipline of the Lord. A litmus test of our lives might be this. What preoccupies us? What absorbs us? We must learn with the Israelites in the desert that we can live in a land with nothing. And our God can provide us with everything. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman by the Jacob's well, the well of Sychar in John chapter 4. He says, uh, you drink this water, you'll thirst again. I give you the water of life, living water. 
If you drink from that, you'll never thirst again. It's a metaphor, of course. He's not talking about uh, uh, H2O. You know, He's not talking about liquid water as we see it. He's using water as a representation of that which we need and we know we need instinctively and satisfies, alone can satisfy our soul. We can't get it anywhere else, Jesus says. But from God through him, he stands in the temple on the last day of, of one of the feasts and he cries out, if anyone believes in me, out of his innermost being will gush forth, that's the word, rivers of living water. And that's a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. And after his death and resurrection and ascension, he pours out that spirit upon his church in a way that was unprecedented. The spirit was there before. Certainly, there were people with gifts, certainly, but he came on certain people for certain tasks at certain times. But from Pentecost onward, the risen Christ pours out his spirit so that all God's people, every one of them, have at least one gift and none have them all so that we're inter- dependent and they're lifelong he gives them and doesn't take them back the gifts and calling of God are without repentance and uh, they're for all the people of God sons and daughters young and old so that we together might be a living temple exercising these gifts in ways that build each other up and reach out to the community around us because that's why God has placed us here. Second, God is faithful to his covenant as he deals with his people. Verse 6, the land he, God, had solemnly promised to give us. To whom had he promised that? It was really originally with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who never themselves possessed that land except for a burial cave at a place called Machpelah, purchased from the Hittites. But God had promised it to them. A land in which they would dwell. And God also said, connected with that, to Abraham, I will be your God. You'll be my people. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It wasn't just a blessing for them to huddle around the campfire and feel good about themselves. It was missional. I'm a Professor Emeritus of Missions, you expected me to say that. But it is. It's God's idea, you know. He calls a people to himself who are on mission with him. A pilgrim people. A, pil- a people on the way. And as he does deal with his people faithfully to his covenant, we must remember that his holiness and his glory are non-negotiable. Verse 6, we're told, since they had not obeyed the Lord, he wouldn't let them enter in. Who's the they? Of course, it's the previous generation. A couple of years after they'd come out of Egypt and they'd gone to Sinai, they'd received the law of God. They made a golden calf while Moses was delayed for 40 days and nights up in the mountain receiving the law of God. And you remember, Moses came down from the mountain and saw that and he threw the tablets down and shattered them, ground up the... uh, golden calf sprinkled in the water they had to drink and so on. And then he went back up to the mountain again to receive again the law of God. And God said, stand back, Moses. Remember? I'm going to wipe the mountain, make of you the Abrahamic promised seed. 
a great number, a great host from you. Moses says, don't do that. You are a gracious God. You've proclaimed your name as one who is faithful to your promises and forgiving and slow to anger. Doesn't, doesn't overlook the guilty, but you forgive. You're compassionate. Forgive this people. God says, I will. They go to the southern tip of the promised land of what is now Gaza. And they're supposed to go in. They send out, we talked about it last week, a reconnaissance team of 12. <laughs> 12 who will bring back a report and something, a field specimen about the land. They said, it's flows with milk and honey. It's a good land. But there are a lot of people there. They're highly armed. The chariots and the planes. High uh, uh, castles, as it were. Uh, walled cities. And some of the people are giants. And we felt like grasshoppers to them. And I'm sure they looked at us that way. We can't go in. Joshua and Caleb said, let's go. We can do it. The Lord's with us. We have his promise, his command. And the, others, the other ten said, oh, no, we can't do it. It's really a bad land. We lied. It doesn't flow with milk and honey. It's not a good land. We lied. Take this uh, specimen field sample. Hide it. We lied. We can't do it. We'll be killed. Our children will be slaves to the people of the land. And God said, stand back, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out. He says it again, second time. And what does Moses do? Same thing in Numbers chapter 14. We read, if you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, listen, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the desert. For your fame, and then he, he appeals to the name of God proclaimed before Moses on Mount Sinai. The name of God repeated again and again throughout the pages of the Old Testament into the New. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, by no means clears the guilty. And Moses says, please forgive them. God says, now listen, I'll forgive them. That's important. From, not because they deserve it, but because they have a mediator. Moses is a picture of what Jesus, the great and only perfect mediator, will one day come to do and has now in our day come. 2,000 years past and is done for us. God says, I have forgiven them, but I'm not going to let them. They're temporal consequences. They cannot enter the promised land. The, they will die in the desert, this generation, all but Joshua and Caleb, who brought the good report. And their children, whom they said would be a prey to the people of the land, will be the ones who will possess and conquer it. See, God, His holiness, His glory are non-negotiable. He's concerned for that. But at the same time, His justice is tempered by mercy and covenant love and faithfulness. We read in verse 7 of our text, So He raised up their sons in their place. Chris Byerly read from us, for us from Hebrews 10, verses 35 through 39, in which there's a line that says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. That's how the chapter ends there. 
Now, I'm not real knowledgeable about Major League Baseball. I've been to a few games and so on, but I understand there's a difference between the leagues and their rules about designated hitter. But there is in Major League Baseball, at least in, yeah, in one league within it, uh, the designated hitter. And uh, why would you have a designated hitter? Well, you'd have a designated hitter if you've got somebody with clout. <laughs> and you want to substitute them for somebody in the regular lineup so that you have a chance, maybe he's right or left-handed, against the pitcher that's on the mound. And you want to, uh, as a manager, you want to put that hitter in there. Well, they don't always <laughs> make the hit. They sometimes are struck out. But, you know, Jesus is our designated hitter. <laughs> oh, he's much more than that. He never strikes out. Jesus does what we can't. I want you to understand that. In Hebrews 10, 38, we read a quotation from Habakkuk, the prophet. My righteous one will live by faith, by his faith. His faith in the original. Whose faith? The, the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Well, the people who are saved will live by their faith. Well, yes. Paul picks up on this. Yes, but be careful here. Our faith isn't in our faith. <laughs> It's not what it means. The his is the righteous one in whom all other righteous ones receive our righteousness. It's not our faith that's so perfect. It's his, Lord Jesus Christ, our champion. He perfectly obeyed the heavenly father, lived a life we couldn't and haven't, laid it down, that innocent life, in order that God might pour unto him the wrath and judgment due to us. Finally, God will complete the deliverance of his people as he promised. I, the Lord, verse 1, have dried up the Jordan. The Lord dried up the Jordan. He's, be, he's going to complete what he's promised. He's brought them in. But that's only the beginning. See, his zeal for his name also makes him, this is important, zealous for his people. Verse 9, the reproach of Egypt. I used to read right past that. Think, oh, well, reproach, reproach of Egypt is because this people had come out of Egypt as slaves and now they're not. No, this people hadn't. They were all minors and not yet most of them not even born. Some of them had been circumcised before they left Egypt, but they were minors. They weren't yet adults. Children. Most of them hadn't even been born yet. Reproach of Egypt? Why not the reproach of Kadesh Barnea? The reproach of Mount Sinai? The reproach of Moab? There's an incident there where they were idolatrous again. The reproach of Meribah and Massa and some of these other places where... The people again and again rebelled. Why not the reproach of that? But no, God says the reproach of Egypt. Why? Why? Because it's God's honor. That's why. You see, the people around us, like the nations around Israel, will see something about our God in us. God's work among us. And if we rebel and bring that judgment, the nations around, the people around us, the church, are going to say, see what their God is like. 
And it's the honor of God before the salvation of his people. But it's because of the honor of God that the salvation of his people is secure. Because the father entered into covenant with his son, according to Ephesians 1, from before the foundation of the earth, a covenant which embraced you and me if we're believers today. And said, I'll die for you. I want you as my own, closer, more closely united than husband to wife. And that's what circumcision in the Old Testament meant. It's what baptism in the New Testament means. Colossians chapter 2. Circumcised together with Christ. Buried with him in baptism. So that the circumcision not made by hands but by God. Paul goes like that. Moves back and forth. We are God's people. The sign and seal of God's covenant rests upon us. The people in uh, uh, Joshua chapter 5 were circumcised that day and it meant something. It meant something. It meant it's not so much that they were making a commitment. They were. They were. We do too. We heard it this morning. It's not so much that that commitment from us is important as it is. As much as it is God saying you are mine by covenant. Now, not all those who are in the covenant are of the covenant. Covenant breakers, those who leave and uh, never were part of it, but they benefited from all the outward um, uh, benefits of associating with the community of God's covenant, of his people. And that's a dangerous thing. It's worse than not ever being in the covenant according to God. So we need to, in the words of the Westminster standards, or our standards doctrinally, improve our baptism. What does it mean? Make it better. No, it means understand better what it means and appropriate it for our lives. You see, there's an old saying, jealousy is a green-eyed monster, and most human jealousy is because it's selfish and possessive and sinful. But you know that God is jealous in a holy and righteous way. His name is Yahweh Kana, the Lord, whose name is jealous. Jealous in what ways? Jealous for his name, his honor, that his glory may be renowned. There's nothing more perfect and righteous and just and true and loving and holy and good and faithful than he is. He's zealous for that. And because he's zealous for that and has covenanted with his son for his people for you and me, as we're believers today, he embraces us and will not let us go. And I, for one, am thankful because I have been a Jonah, covenant child who has run from God. Perhaps there's some here who identify with that. Perhaps there are some who are still running from him. Perhaps there are those who've never been part of this covenant and wonder, how can I be? Well, it speaks of the Passover. And what was the Passover? It was the slaying of a lamb. Originally, the, the, in Egypt, the night before they were delivered, the Lord delivered them from slavery, they put the blood on the doorposts of their homes. And the destroying angel went throughout Egypt and slew the firstborn of all of Egypt, except for those who came 
were circumcised first in Cain. And in those Israelite houses, protected by the mark of the blood of the Lamb, the angel passed over them. And they celebrated the Passover. And they came out that very day as it dawned. And do you know that our Lord's table was commemorated, first instituted by our Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed as a celebration of the Passover. It's described for us in Luke 24 and again in other, other Gospels. But you know, it's a Passover. And the central part of the Passover feast is a lamb. And the one thing that is never mentioned in that feast in the accounts in the Gospel is the lamb. Why? Why? Because the silence of that powerfully shouts, here he is. Here he is. Here's the lamb. Behold, as John the Baptist said at Jesus' baptism, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're raised to newness of life in him. God intends us to have that new life, to leave behind the old. The world's values, its definition of success, its hamster wheel of a rat race, where we're slaves to our ponies and our homes and our lifestyle and our prestige among our neighbors, and we are freed to focus on the things that really count in service to a God who will provide everything, even in a land of nothing. How much more here in America? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are able to deliver to the uttermost those who trust in you. Help us, O oh Lord, I pray, to trust in you. I pray in Jesus' name.